I really truly believe that humans have just scratched the surface of what is possible for our species. We can do so much better than we've done before. Cynicism and pessimism are part of the human experience as well. Any given day for me, it's usually the morning. That's when it's easiest for me to kind of give into cynicism and pessimism, just like, oh God, this world that we're in, you know, doom scrolling through our social media feeds or our news feeds. And, and it's really easy to find evidence for pessimism and cynicism. But then again, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're doomed to do. Let's take the knowledge that we have. Let's see what we can do with it. Is a world of inclusivity truly possible? How do we all get there? In this episode of the Creator Community, we'll meet Jason Patton, a professor turned founder and consultant and now author. We'll hear his lessons learned and mistakes made on creating impactful inclusivity. He openly admits he has not mastered inclusivity and has negatively impacted others in his life, but knows we can do better. Jason believes as humans, if we acknowledge the challenges of inclusion and see this work as a lifelong journey of constant improvement, we will find a better path forward for all of us. Check out the show. Welcome to the Creator Community. This is a podcast from book publisher, New Degree Press, or NDP, powered by Manuscripts, Inc. I'm your host, John Saunders. This show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that have published their books with NDP. In this show, we learned about the authors, their journeys, and their books. This year, NDP will cross over 1,700 published authors on six continents and earn a spot on the Inc. 5000 list for the second year in a row. This is the fastest growing privately held companies in America. If you've ever thought of writing a book but weren't sure where to start or how to finish, visit manuscripts.com to learn more. This is episode four of season six, and today I have with me Jason Patton. He is the author of Humanly Possible, A New Model of Leadership for a More Inclusive World, which is due out this January 2023, wherever you buy books online. Jason is a father of two, an ultra marathon runner, and the founder and principal at JP Global Lead LLC and co-founder of Bridge Labs. He is an organizational consultant, author, thought leader, instructor, and workshop facilitator in the fields of global leadership and global diversity, equity, and inclusion. A fluent speaker of Mandarin Chinese, Jason directed the Robertson Center for Intercultural Leadership, CIL, at UC Berkeley's International House for seven years. Prior to that, he served as American co-director of the Hopkins Nanjing Center for Chinese American Studies in Nanjing, China, inaugural director of the Stanford Program in Beijing, consultant to Cap International, and vice president communications and marketing at Orchestral, Inc. Jason, great to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Well, before we get into learn about this extraordinary book you've put together, I'd love to, for our listeners to learn a little bit more about your career and the ultra marathon journey that led you here today. <laughs> I guess life is an ultra marathon. <laughs> right. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today and thank you for inviting me. And it's great to have an opportunity to reflect on kind of how I got here. And I think for me, I, from an early age, I knew that my career was going to have something to do with cultural differences. I when I got to college, I chose East Asian studies as my major. I studied Mandarin Chinese and Chinese history. And then I went to China for a couple of years to teach English. I've always been fascinated by language. And I went on to get a PhD in linguistics. And it was not long after I finished that PhD that I had my first job as an organizational leader. It was a small organization, but I was hired by a US-based university. Well, it's right there in my bio, Stanford University, <laughs> to run their new study abroad program. 
in Beijing. And for me, this is where kind of culture and leadership first came together. And I found I found that I had this this power as a director of the program that I hadn't been trained to use well. I'd only been a graduate student until then. I had no idea how to use this power. And some problems ensued from that. And if you look at my career since then, I've had a number of leadership positions in the United States and in China. And in all of these positions, I've had power. And there have been other people who've also had power. Power has been used on me well, and it's been used on me poorly. I have used my power well on others and also poorly. And kind of a big theme that emerged from all of this for me was so much damage gets done to other human beings and to organizations and to organizational goals. And it's preventable if we have the right tools. It just seems to me that there's got to be a better way to go about this. And when I talk about power, it's not just organizational authority that doesn't get used well. There's other forms of power also. And one of those is unearned advantage or this term privilege. I'm a cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied white man. And it's I've been learning so much, especially in the post-George Floyd world about you know, how is it that I, given all of these kind of dimensions of my identity that are privileged, how do I participate in and also perpetuate systemic harm without even knowing that I'm doing it and without trying to do it? How does that work? And what can I do to try to counter that? It's preventable. And I've felt like I've had a lot to say about this from my experiences over the decades. And I've been wanting to write a book about it for a really long time. But of course, life always gets in the way. Too busy. Uh, then in late 2021, so just just a little bit over a year ago, I left my last job at the Robertson Center for Intercultural Leadership and decided it was time to strike out on my own and start my new business. And as luck would have it, that's also when I discovered the Book Creators Program. Amazing. So this concept of power, I can't wait to dig into this more as we we talk through so many key lessons and stories from your book. And it's a big one. And I think one that we often don't necessarily take the time to reflect on. So I'm so glad you're bringing this message forward and reminding people that so many of the issues that are out there in the world are preventable. And maybe part of it's just about being human, which of course ties back to the title of your book. Before we jump in there, Jason, I'd love to find how you discovered the program and how you fit it into your life. Yeah, it was it was a real alignment of the stars moment in my life because it was November of 2021 that I started my business. Uh, a really good friend of mine, you know, I was, I was just really thinking and a lot of talking to a lot of friends about what's next for me. And a really good friend of mine by the name of Ed Frown, who himself is a four-time published author, told me about the Book Creators Program. I hadn't ever heard of it. I thought, that sounds interesting. That actually sounds a little bit too good to be true. So I, I Googled it, saw that a cohort was starting in February. As it happens, my friend Ed knew a couple of people who'd been through the program. Because, you know, I was skeptical. I was like, there's no way it could really be as good as it looks. And I talked to them and they said, well, it worked great for me. And, you know, they shared more about the challenges that they had. But they said that the program, the way that it was designed and the way that it was structured was extremely well thought out. And I thought, well, now is the time. There's no point in waiting any longer. So I just signed up, said this is the time to go for it. Well, thanks to Ed for another uh, one of the many referrals that have shown up at this mm -hmm. program. And I'm with you 100%. I published a book with the program in 2020, the end of 2020. And when I was first introduced to it, I thought, there's no way this exists it is, right. as it's right. described, uh -huh. particularly with a pre-sale campaign that exists six months before the program. 
and you mm-hmm. can fully fund your publishing costs, which I was able to do. How did you fare on the pre-sale? I hit my goal. Well, actually, I I pleaded for an extension and I got one. I, I didn't quite get make it by the original deadline, but I was given a few more days. And on the very last day, the second to last person who supported me got me over the finish line. Congratulations yeah. on that. And, and by Thank the you. way, I want to flip this story around for a, little, a second because you sort of maybe painted a bit of a negative picture there, Jason. And I would tell you, most authors <laughs> sell 200 books lifetime. And you did around that before the book, six months or so before it even published and got all these early supporters on board, which is so, so important to the journey. And part of what we like to say is publishing your book like a second time author, which is so, so Mm -hmm. important. How would you compare the author's journey to these ultra marathons you've done in your life? It's long. The rewards are not necessarily immediately present at any given moment. (laughs) There are times when you think there's no way you'll get to the finish line. And if you just keep moving forward step by step, you're going to cross that finish line. Wow. And there'll, there'll be many cramps and pain along the way. Many cramps and pain <laughs> and unexpected challenges, but also but also angels along the way too. And this happens in every ultra marathon that I've ever run is, you know, you hit a low point and you feel like this is how it has always been and how it shall always be. And then someone comes along, whether it's a volunteer at one of the aid stations or a fellow runner who lifts you up. And reminds you about why you're there, what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish, and what you need to do in order to accomplish it. And oftentimes, it's just as simple. I mean, it's so cl- it sounds so cliche, but it's so true. Just take the next damn step. If you, it, it, the logic is 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 unassailable. If you keep doing that, you will cross the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> that is some good logic there. You know, interesting. Yeah. Satish Shanoi, who was on the show a couple of seasons ago, wrote a book, and he's a He's run marathons on every single continent on the planet. Wow. Antarctica. And he talked about his first one in San Francisco, actually, of course, a very hilly marathon. And how about mile 20, he was, you know, hunched over thinking, man, I can't go on all these cramps. And a a random runner came up to him and said, Mm. here's some salt pills. Here's a little Mm. water. Take one more step. And he finished. And of course, now he's gone on to do all these. So it sounds like Mm. it's amazing the community that's there. And certainly much like the community we find here with the authors all working all these crazy hours to fit this thing into their life. So there's clearly some challenges with the ultra marathon. What would you say was the hardest moment in the book writing process? And you know, how did you get past that? I think the actually the hardest, the very hardest time for me was pretty early. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to write about when I started out. And so I experienced a lot of self-doubt along the way. I was like, really do this? I mean, is it just, I got all these ideas in my head. Is it just a bunch of mumbo jumbo? I don't know how to structure it. I don't know what's going to be most useful for people. Yeah, it was just, it was, it was hard to get started. What made the difference for me was when I decided, look, I'm just going to give myself over to the process of this program. I'm going to do what they tell me to do. I'm going to try to get out of my head and worry about it. I mean, it really was kind of like this, take the next step. For me, what that was, was go to the weekly sessions where Professor Eric Custer would guide us through how to really how to get started. And it all started with writing these things called snippets, 50 to 200 words, a really brief story. Like anybody can sit down and write 50 to 200 words about something that they've been through, something that they've experienced. So that was kind of like one step is writing one snippet. And then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you do it again. And you'd say, you know, so your work for this week is you're going to write five to 10 snippets. Okay, I can do that. 
And before long, the snippets started to converge around some themes. And those themes kind of became something that started to look more and more like a book. And before I knew it, I was kind of off and running. And so that low point, I think, for me was the way that I managed to get through that was just trusting the program, trusting the process, and getting the work done. And that led then to this this overall, the themes of the book kind of popping to life. There's a reason this program has produced nearly 2,000 authors, right? There's a process here that helps you get through all these hurdles, and the community really helps you overcome and the the you know, the imposter syndrome, I think, is a word I might put in there. And it's amazing, the folks, myself included, that experience this to varying degrees and how much it can just paralyze you. But when you take that 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 trust in the process and take that one more mm-hmm. step, it's amazing what you can accomplish and really take it off in bite-sized chunks, which is so, so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds like an awesome journey that you've had and one that really parallels the the journey you've been on with all these ultra marathons. That's awesome. Your cover of Humanly Possible, love it. I won't describe it, but I love all the different intricacies of it. How did that come <laughs> together for you? Yeah. The, the, so another another wonderful thing about the program as a whole has been the opportunity to do stuff I've never done before and to think about stuff I've never thought of before and to work with people with expertise that I don't have. And the book cover design process is, is a great example of that. Having the chance to work with the team of professional designers. I mean, the team's right there. I didn't have to, I didn't have to go and, you know, Google book cover designers. They're provided as part (laughs) of the program. And it was just, it was just really fun to talk to the designer and watch him create in real time and mirror back to me what it was that I was trying to accomplish. That was the first step. And then it was fun once, you know, there's three draft designs that came out. And I shopped all three of them to my author community, the folks that had supported me in the presale campaign. And then <laughs> looking at all of the different feedback, like everybody had a different opinion. But at the same time, there was kind of a consensus. There, there were there were a number, like most people were gravitating towards one of them and then had some, some suggestions for how to make it better. Um and then another iteration and then another iteration after that. And we had the final cover. So, but there was also, it was also stressful because thinking about the stakes, this is the cover of my book. It better look good and it better do what it's supposed to do, which is draw people in at the same time as conveying something important about the book. So I had to manage that in the process and just recognize just like everything, you know, at some point you have to make a decision and you have to finalize something. And, and then there's no, there's a point of no return. So I just tried to make sure that I had a good process in place that I could confidently say, yeah, of course, I'm going to still going to have doubts because that's the human condition, but where I could see like, Hey, you know, this is the best cover that, that we could, that we could do. And one more thing about that, the fact that community was a part of this, this is just theme. It comes it's a theme that comes back again and again and again. I love the tagline of the program, never write alone. It's not just writing, never write alone. It's everything that we do in the program is community focused. And the cover design process was was another example of that as well. Do you mind if I share the, a little bit about the picture with our listeners? I don't mind at all. <laughs> it's essentially you know a pocket knife with all the different pieces of it, right? And the different mm-hmm. pieces that I'm guessing are the tools that we need to be good leaders, right? Yeah. And be yeah. more human. So speaking of being more human and humanly possible, Jason, what is the book about? Yeah. So fundamentally, it's about how can each of us use the power that we have to create spaces where people feel that they truly belong? And if we, to the extent we're able to succeed at this, we should be able to see people who are less stressed out, 
We should be see people who are happier. And workplaces that are like this should be more productive. And ultimately, and one of the beautiful things that I found about this, and I think that to the extent that we apply the tools in the book, it's not just a workplace thing. It's also a personal thing. More fulfilling lives can result, I think, as well from using the tools that are in the book. And there's three kind of main themes that this focuses around. Number one, we already have what we need. Human beings, that is, as a species, we have what we need in order to create radically more inclusive workplaces and also a radically more inclusive world. And the key to the whole thing is learning to recognize and counter the tricks of the amygdala in the brain, the, 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 the threat detection mechanism in the brain. Doing what we can to deact, like recognize, oh, rather than like, this person's really bad. It's like, oh, I'm having a reaction. Okay, what can I do to calm that down and then engage the neocortex where we do so much of our executive functioning and collaborative thinking so that the, our, everyone's creative energies can really shine forth. So we can do this. We've, we know so much more now than we've known before about how that process works. So that's number one. We have what we need. Except, number two, power mucks up the whole thing. Power amplifies our ability to do harm to others, even when we have no idea that we're doing it and when we have no intention of doing it. And it makes it harder also for us to, power makes it hard for us to see the impact of our actions. So the book has a lot of tools for minimizing harm, but also recognizing we're going to continue to screw up. We're going to continue to do harm. How can we heal and repair? and reckon with the impact of our actions so that the next time we can do better. Third theme, when difference is present, that is when we encounter people who are different from us, which is basically everybody, who should do the adapting? Well, historically, it's the folks with less power who are doing all of the code switching, all of the adapting to the, the way things are done. This book really tries to flip that on its head and say, the folks with more power need to be doing more of the adapting. And the book is full of specific strategies and skills for bridging. That's a term that comes up again and again in the book, which is adapting behavior towards the preferences of those who have less power than us. So often we just think, right, as, as leaders, we see them, we think oh, we're in charge. People need to sort of deal with whatever landscape I've created for them because maybe yeah. this is just how the culture is that we spend or how we were brought up yes. or what have you. And I really appreciate that you're making a, a very strong attempt here to flip that script on its head and say, hey, wait a minute, as leaders, we're here to serve and help empower others, right? And yes. create an environment where we can all do better. Because at the end of the day, if we get that right, what happens? Right. Good things. Right. Who's this book for? I think in broadest strokes, the book really is for anybody who's interested in creating a more inclusive world. I mean, so I think anybody could pick up the book and benefit from it. That said, you know, in the introduction, I say that it's for anyone looking for practical everyday actions that we can take to create and sustain workplaces where everyone feels like they belong. But I also say in the introduction that you know the stories and the principles in the book are going to depend a lot on your relative privilege as a reader. I feel like, I mean, you know, time will tell how it all plays out. I suspect that the more privileged identity groups one belongs to, the more they might feel both excited and also challenged by the book. So we all have power. We all have spheres of influence. We all have ways in which we can use the power to create a greater sense of belonging. And at the same time, 
I think, and this has to do with my positionality as a cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied white man. I wrote the book. So I think a lot of readers who fit that description or the closer the reader comes to fitting that description, they're more, they're going to be like, oh, this is exciting. And I'm like, oh, this is also a little bit challenging. Can create some awkwardness to be around these topics, right? And I want to get into it in yes. just a minute, but before we go there, you know, this concept of power and creating this sense of belonging really seems embedded in your your persona. And I'm getting a real strong sense of that. And, and I'd love to get our listeners to hear, you know, what drove you to really push on this? You know, where did this idea come from? Where did this mission come from? And what was it about it that drove you to write this book? My brain sometimes can operate in this really logical way that other people sometimes find annoying. <laughs> I totally understand why. But I I can't get past, I think if, if you want to make the case that human beings are doomed, well, you're making a claim and you need to have evidence to back up that claim. Okay, great. Well, look at human history. There's my evidence. We're totally screwed up. And then my response to that is, okay, that's the past. And I understand that the past might give us an indication of the future, but I guess what is the investment advice? What past performance don't necessarily indicate future results, something like that, right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's applying that broad logic to our future. And this is where I bring in this notion of, we know so much more now than we did just a couple decades ago about how the human brain works. We know from the social sciences about how human organizations work and how power structures work. We just know so much more now than we've ever known before. So if you want to make that case, I, I just don't know how effectively you can make it. I really truly believe that humans have just scratched the surface of what is possible for our species. We can do so much better than we've done before. Cynicism and pessimism are part of the human experience as well. Any given day for me, it's usually the morning. That's when it's easiest for me to kind of give into cynicism and pessimism, just like, oh, God, this world that we're in, you know, doom scrolling through our social media feeds or our news feeds. And, and it's really easy to find evidence for pessimism and cynicism. But then again, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're doomed to do. Let's take the knowledge that we have. Let's see what we can do with it. Let's see if we can find some ways to take this and apply it in meaningful ways that are going to start to turn this thing around. Now, a key, a key piece of this whole thing is like, I don't, I don't think there's a shiny end goal where it's like, everybody's happy. Like we're always going to be screwing up. We're always going to be hurting people. So it's, it's a journey that doesn't really, I guess this is where it diverges from the ultra marathon, right? It's like, there is no really no finish line here, but there is a direction that we can put ourselves, a path that we can put ourselves on. So given everything that we have, the knowledge that we have, let's see what we can accomplish together. We're not always going to get it right. It's never easy. But if we go on this journey of constant improvement of trying to create a more inclusive world, if you will, we're going to have better results. People will live with less stress. I would be willing to bet crime rates would probably go down and businesses would see better results. Am I, am I getting the story right here? Yes. And I think, I think, you know, it's, it's, I mean, systems exist, right? And it's interesting because, you know, sometimes I've, I've seen the opinion expressed, you know, that you can't really change or like changing hearts and minds isn't, isn't going to get the job done. We need to change systems. And I agree with that. 100% in that 
systems do have to change. And at the same time, I, th I think it's a both and. We need to fundamentally shift how we see ourselves, how we use our power. So the hearts and minds piece really is where my book sits. I'm not an expert on how to change systems, but you do also have to change systems. So you, know, you mentioned crime rates going down. I think ultimately, you know, we, we, we look forward into the future. Yes, I can, I can envision a world like that. That is going to take a lot of intentionality. And so, you know, my hope, I, I, I can't draw it, but guess what I'm saying is I can't specify for you exactly how this long-term societal change happens. I don't, I don't know how it's going to happen. I just feel like this piece, this kind of hearts and minds piece, this personal kind of transformation has to be a crucial ingredient of that. We have to find a way to be better humans and find out what's humanly possible for all of us. You, you've used the term hearts and minds a number of times here, which often mm -hmm. makes me think of emotions. And when we get into these con these these conversations, and I've, I've been in meetings where we had diversity, equity, and inclusion training, and it was met with some emotional charge. People thought, mm -hmm. wait, why? what did I do wrong? Why are you attacking yes. me? I'm here trying yes. to do my job and do things that are great. What if, Suddenly, I, now I did something wrong. You know, is there anything in your thinking that, that the book can help address, help, help to address? Yes. A couple things in terms of how I handle this in the book. First, there's a, so there's the introduction, and then there's a very short chapter right after that that's called Setting a Baseline. And in that chapter, one of the things that I'm doing is establishing that you can't, that we together can't do this learning unless we are willing to be uncomfortable. And there's, there's a, this is a, a learning model that comes from the world of, at least I, I came to it through my experience in international education. It's called challenge and support. And I don't, it's, I don't actually use that terminology in the book. Instead, I talk about the learning zone, comfort zone, and panic zone. If you're just hanging out in the comfort zone, you're not going to learn much. If you're out there in the panic zone, you're not going to learn much. We need to try to find that that learning zone where we feel challenged and supported at the same time. And a lot, it takes a lot of intentionality to find that learning zone and stay in that learning zone. I think what happens a lot of times if we're not prepared, if a, if a, if a workshop, for example, isn't, isn't, hasn't really thought through this and we're not really mindful of how we could be sent into the panic zone then everybody ends up in the panic zone and, and things don't end well. So there's a certain level of willingness that learners need to have. And this starts and ends really with me. I'm, I'm constantly learning more and more about this, but we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. We also have to meet people where we are. And so it's not, if you think, if you think about, if you think about how our hyper individualist culture and the messages we get about our, about ourselves and our success in the United States is so much about like, I earned every damn thing I have. <laughs> and there's this kind of cultural mythology that we're fed from a young age that really, it's very convenient, you know, to the extent that we have, that we belong to privileged identities. If I can sit here and think, yeah, I earned everything I have. Well, then I can just blame everybody else for what, for not having what they don't have. And it's really threatening to our sense of who we are our identities. 
if we haven't been thinking about these questions, then these questions come at us and we're just like, what did I do wrong? Like you were saying, like, why, why are you attacking me? And so I think the skill that we need to build there is instead of just giving into that feeling, let's name it. Let's recognize, okay, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the amygdala. It's like, okay, sense of threat detected, amygdala active. This is normal. This is natural. It's also not the end of the story. We need to figure out what to do with that and how we can transform that into something else. So you talked about figuring out ways to bring people into this learning zone because right in the panic and comfort zone, nothing gets done. We're either very, being very apathetic or hyper-defensive maybe to, to sort of take the extremes. As a facilitator, you know, Jason, when you set these workshops up, these facilitation, these sessions up, how do you bring people into that learning zone and make them feel safe to go there? I think a lot of it has to do with sharing my own experiences of wrestling and reckoning with these difficult feelings and sharing the ways in which I've screwed up in the past because I have... And will continue to make mistakes. There's some. There's a real power to to naming and normalizing things that are human experiences. So if I'm there sharing with people, I don't like having these conversations. This isn't something. It's not like if I'm sitting. I'd rather watch Netflix, right? You know, I'd rather make dinner for my family and sit down and eat. I mean, there's a. I could name dozens and dozens and dozens of things that I'd rather do than do this kind of reflecting. I don't like it. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. Digging into our flaws, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and looking at things that we don't want to see about ourselves. And I can honestly share with people experience. And, and, and this is, you know, tying it back to the book. I share a lot of my own experiences in the book. What comes from what becomes possible when we do that? in community with others, when we take a look at ourselves in that way, what can we do together that we might not have been able to do otherwise? And every single time I've been successful at doing that work, the rewards have paid off. The learning and the way that people can, that we can, that trust can be built and relationships can be strengthened. And if we're talking, if we tie it back into an organizational context, whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish together in whatever organizational context we find ourselves in, we're going to do better. We're going to perform better. Um, and that's that's not what it's ultimately about for me. Like to me, that's like the that's like thank goodness we the organizations do better. You know, thank goodness that we can have better organizational outcomes because to me, it's never been fundamentally about the business case. It's fundamentally about the human case. If, I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have any interest in saying any of this stuff if it wasn't also true that teams and organizations can perform better as a, as a result of doing this work. But all, all of that to say, it really does, I think, require something of people, especially people with more privileged identities, a willingness to experience unpleasant feelings and a willingness to take more of an honest look at ourselves, to take on ourselves as an object of study, just like study ourselves. We might study the wind patterns on the water or like whatever it is that we have curiosity about that's outside of ourselves. Let's just turn that on ourselves and see, see what we can discover. Because shame and fear are two common emotions here. And I think naming that is also helpful as well. 
because I honestly don't, I don't think any of us has anything to be ashamed of. And I don't think any of us has anything to be afraid of. We do have work to do. We do have learning to do, but that's all it is. It's work and it's learning. It's amazing the power of naming and highlighting some of these awkward feelings that we have and, and just putting it out there and, and normalizing and say, hey, we all feel this way, right? And I really appreciate the fact that you model this behavior in your workshops and begin with vulnerability. I, I remember doing a coaching session with an author who was riddled with imposter syndrome. Is anyone going to read my book? And it's, you know, it's, it doesn't even make any sense. And I shared with the, a similar story I had throughout my own journey and how I screwed up and thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm never going to sell a copy of this book ever and how I ended up <laughs> overcoming that. That person has since gone on to win a number of book awards for a book that they thought never had a chance. So I, I, I mm. vulnerability breeds vulnerability. And I think that creates a place, a really powerful starting point to get into some of these awkward situations and being mm. willing to reflect and be more self-aware, which is a key concept in your book, right? This lifelong practice of self-awareness you talk about mm. and bridging the differences between people that have power and people that don't, you know. What was that like for you in writing the book? And did you take your own medicine in, in dealing with this? And, and how so? <laughs> taking my own medicine. Sometimes I feel like I'm always taking my medicine. And it never tastes good. Looking back at writing the book, parts of the book were, were really painful to write. You know, and I had to, I had to look back at... And, and these stories, they're all, there, they're all right there in the book for readers to, to, to see. But you know, looking back at how I hurt others, I've, I've you know, I said when I say I'm gonna say used my power, I not intentionally, and that's that's the whole part of this whole thing, right? It's like we, we we're so obsessed with like, but I didn't mean to, but I didn't mean to. Okay, I understand that you're not out like not that many of us are out there intentionally trying to cause harm, or not that many of us are out there intentionally trying to use the power that we have to harm others, and yet we do, and. Looking back at my own experiences with this, looking back at the ways that I've harmed others, not fun and hard to write about. And at the same time, despite all these cringy moments in the writing process, it's something, again, that's, that's, that's worth doing because as the readers will see when they read these stories and go through the, the accompany me on these, these journeys within this book and see what happens as a result of doing that honest reckoning who wouldn't want those results that come from that i think everybody does and everybody would it doesn't come for free and i think that's another another big theme in the book is that we do have work to do and the work again it's not as fun as watching netflix but the results are there and the results are worth doing that work for and i am constantly screwing up still and I will continue to. And so it doesn't ever end. This is lifelong work. Discovering ourselves, how we impact the world around us, how we bring ourselves to the world around us, our thing. And the sooner we can recognize that and admit it and name what it is we're doing or not doing properly is, is such a powerful, powerful exercise. And I really appreciate you bringing this message out there. You know, given that the message is now out there, you've had a number of beta readers along the way. You know, mm -hmm. what's been some of the feedback from the early readers that you've heard about the book and the kind of difference it's making for them? It's been really, you know, the beta readers, they're a friendly audience, right? They're people who know me. And so I don't know how much of this is a harbinger of what readers who don't know me are going to think about the book. So that's kind of a caveat to what I'm about to say. 
the feedback I've been getting from beta readers, in addition to the, to the, the suggestions they had for, for improving the book, like this, this isn't really working, you know, so all the, the sort of, you know, constructive feedback um, has been just pretty, pretty consistently across the board. People saying, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of X, Y, or Z this way before. Wow. You really opened my eyes to this, this, or that. And I'm also already seeing ways that I can apply this in my life. And that's, that's, that's my dream. That's been my dream from the start. And it, I can kind of feel like it's starting to come true. That is fantastic to see this work you've done, this pain you've gone through, this marathon you've run to get this book out there, to go through the exercise of learning about yourself, learning about what you really think and putting it coherently on paper and having an editor approve it, right? Yeah. Uh, it's such a, a great exercise. And it's just so rewarding to hear that kind of feedback. I'm sure from readers come back to you. That is fantastic. You know, you've obviously done a lot of work throughout your life and learning about yourself and how you impact those around you. You know, how do you think the book has expanded that for you? What do you think you learned about yourself along the way through the, the author journey? For Here we are, you and I on this podcast, and we're talking about me and my book. And I'm sharing about, you know, how hard this work is to do and all of that. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, that can't be what this is all about. What this is all about is mitigating, preventing, reversing like systemic harm. So, you know, I can lament all day long about, you know, how hard this work is to do, but every single day, and this is, I'm going to just kind of get really real about this, but every single day people are suffering and in some cases dying as a result of existing systems and the way that these systems harm entire populations of other people. So one of the ways in which I'm trying to grow, and I think in which writing this book is helping me to grow is like, yeah, sure, the work is hard, but what the heck else are we supposed to be doing with our time on earth? If I am sitting here benefiting from systems that are harming other people, then, and again, this is, this is like the logical part of my brain, then what else is there to do other than trying to recognize that and seeing what I can do to reverse that? And that's a constant, constant source of ongoing learning for me. It's, I can't continually sit here and much as I might want to center myself and my own challenges in doing all this work, it's nothing compared to the things that people have to put up with every single day. People who don't look like me, whether the, you know, so facing discrimination, whether it's based on race, whether it's based on gender identity, whether it's based on physical ability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are real this is a real kind of harm that's being done every single day. And that is, that's what we, where we need to keep our focus. That's transforming that, minimizing that is really where the focus ultimately needs to be. So going through this journey, if I'm hearing you right, Jason, it's only reinforced your passion for having this level of self-awareness, spreading this message and helping others see that we need to take a step back once in a while and, and see what is this impact we're having on the world around us and what can we do about it? Because, you know, the playing field maybe isn't as fair as we thought it was for everybody on planet Earth. And when we can get this more fair of a system out there, and we'll never get it exactly right, as you've shared repeatedly, you know, it's we're going to have a better place for all of us to live in. Now, I remember mm -hmm. one of the first times I had a moment of awareness around this in my own life. I was at a college football game, and it was a Tuesday night game. It was like the only Tuesday night game ever. And I was, I don't know, late 20s. I was a tails guy. I was, you know, dressed in a nice blazer at this big football stadium at University of Louisville, I think it was. 
Mm-hmm. And I was meeting a client there and I just was walking around trying to find where he was. And you know, I, I literally walked down right past security onto the field and I'm standing on the field while the kids are playing practice. And I called my client. I said, where are you? And he said, oh, we're at the tent at this end of the end zone. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm standing on the 20 yard line. And he's like, no, you're not. <laughs> I said, as a matter of fact, Amy said, how the heck did you get to the football field? I said, I just walked out here mm-hmm. and nobody thought to stop me or question me at all. I, I walked right past security guards and I, I'll never forget that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing that, they just said, oh, there's a white guy in a suit. We'll just let him go wherever he wants. And yep. that was a really interesting yep. moment in my life seeing that happen. It, it didn't mm-hmm. strike me till later. It's a thing and, and that these things happen. Yes. And I think that what that points to is when, you know, when society is built for us and people who look like us, but there's just so many things we aren't going to see. So, and I addressed this also early on. There's this beautiful quote from the feminist author, Adrian Rich, that all, all privilege is ignorant at the core. When things go our way, we don't notice it. But when things don't go our way, we sure as heck do. Right. And so, so much of the, of the learning that's incumbent upon folks who belong to more privileged identities is trying to remedy the ignorance with knowledge and with understanding and taking other people's life experiences, taking their stories as real and not dismissing them because it doesn't accord with our experience. And I think that the, the story that you just shared is a great, a great example of that. Yeah, accepting that not everybody is going to ever live or has lived with that circumstance, right? Based on right. how they look, what they wear, all mm-hmm. these kinds of things, right? Yes. Uh, fascinating. You know, Jason, as you've gone through this journey, what's been an unexpected positive or surprise in writing the book for you? As I shared with you, the I started work in the in the book creators program at the same time I was starting to launch my business. And these two tracks have been kind of going in parallel now for almost a year. And of course, the two have something to do with each other, but I wasn't able to be super intentional about that. I was just sort of writing the book here and building my business over here and really mostly the book <laughs> because that's just taken most of the time. But then suddenly the book exists. And one of the things that I'm finding is it's providing kind of a structure and content for this broader world of the work that I'm trying to do. Suddenly I've got these chapters and all of this rich material that I can draw from. So I'm finding myself asking these questions like, how can I keep learning in community with others and use the book as a template? That sort of thing. I mean, you know, my hope is that somebody can grab this book off the shelf Read it. You can read it in an afternoon. It's it's really is. It's 160 pages or so. Put the book down and go out and start doing stuff and have a positive impact that way. Possible, right? I think the real potential of the book is going to be continuing to learn in community. I want to bring people together and give them chances to share their challenges that they're facing in their workplaces and use the tools and strategies from the book. Apply those. Come back and talk some more. What did you try? What worked well? What didn't work well? But again, community is the theme here. And I feel like, you know, I'm, I've been designing and facilitating workshops for a pretty long time. And I, I know I, I've seen the power of bringing people together and working through things. And I kind of feel like a whole other world is opening up now that I've got this, the raw material there to work with, I think is is really powerful. And I'm really excited to see what we can all do together with it. 
That is fantastic. Bringing people together, bringing communities together to address these challenging issues that aren't going to go away by themselves. That I think we can all agree on, no matter what side of the fence we sit on. And I love that you've put a roadmap together to help people do just that and, and bridge this gap. So bottom line here, Jason, humanly possible. What's the key message you hope readers take away from your book? Three, three things. First, <laughs> what is humanly possible might be way more than we've thought. Number two, we have work to do. Number three, it's just work. There's nothing for us to be ashamed of. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. We just need to do the work. There's tremendous upside. We can't avoid it. And it's just like everything else we do with, deal with in life. We have to work away at it. And, it, and that's how we make it go away. It's There's no magical uh, bullet here, right? What's next for you? So I mentioned my excitement about bringing people together. And so I've already started designing an online course that is going to go by the same name as the book. <laughs> and we will be using Humanly Possible as kind of like a textbook. And I'm just really excited to see what can happen when we, when we, when we bring people together. So I think when we talk about what's next, I, I, I just, I, I guess I talked about it a little bit in the last question. I just kind of feel this explosion of possibility around the learning that can happen when we use the book as a touchstone and as a starting point for conversations and for building community, because so much learning can happen as a result of that. So I think what's next for me is exploring what, what we can do together and what learning can happen. And ultimately changing behaviors, you know, how can this ripple out, I guess, in, into the world? And I'm, I'm feeling extremely grateful to, to, to have a platform for doing this and really excited to, to just to see what we can do. Figuring out what truly is humanly possible, right? I think yeah. that's what I'm hearing here as in terms that's of exactly goals. It. That is fantastic. You've got online courses coming down the pipeline, so many ways to expand what it is you're doing and helping to serve others and make our communities and people lives better at the end of the day. If people want to learn more about you and your book, Jason, where might they go? Three places. First, LinkedIn. I'm really easy to find. Just look Jason Patton and you'll, you should be able to find me pretty easily. I have a website, jasonpatton.com. You can go there to, to learn more as well. And then coming soon is another website. I have a partnership called Bridge Labs that I'm forming along with a colleague of mine by the name of Lauren Maloney Ignatius. We've worked together for many, many years. And uh, we're putting together a series of online courses as well that aren't explicitly tied to the book, but also involve a lot of themes that are that are in the book. And a lot, of, a lot of the same kind of strategies and tools that get talked about in the book are also on that website as well. Easy man to find, fantastic content, trying to make the world a little bit more possible, humanly possible, one day at a time. Before we sign off here, I'd love to share a great quote you got, early quote from the book from Lauren Maloney Ignatius, the co-founder of Bridge Labs. She shared, Dr. Patton shows us how to flip power on its head, using it to create workplaces where everyone thrives. This book should be the top of list, top of the list for leadership development and global DEI professionals. How do they feel to get that quote from Lauren? Thank you. <laughs> well, Jason, great to see you. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story of humanly possible with the listeners of the creator community. You're welcome, John. And again, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Jason's book, Humanly Possible, A New Model of Leadership for a More Inclusive World will be available wherever you buy books online this January, 2023. Don't forget to subscribe to the Creator Community channel on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. And if you're ready to write your book, visit manuscripts.com to turn your idea into a book in about a year. I'm your host of the Creator Community, John Saunders. Keep creating. <laughs>